Phase the Fifth, The Woman Pays, Part Three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty. At breakfast, Brazil was the topic, and all endeavored to take a hopeful view of Clare's proposed experiment with that country's soil notwithstanding the discouraging reports of some farm laborers who had emigrated thither and returned home within the twelve months after breakfast clare went into the little town to wind up such trifling matters as he was concerned with there and to get from the local bank all the money he possessed on his way back he encountered miss mercy chant by the church from whose walls she seemed to be a sort of emanation she was carrying an armful of bibles for her class and such was her view of life that events that produced heartache in others wrought beatific smiles upon her an enviable result although in the opinion of angel it was obtained by a curiously unnatural sacrifice of humanity to mysticism she had learned that he was about to leave england and observed what an excellent and promising scheme it seemed to be yes it is a likely scheme enough in a commercial sense no doubt he replied but my dear mercy it snaps the continuity of existence perhaps a cloister would be preferable a cloister oh angel clare well why you wicked man a cloister implies a monk and a monk roman catholicism and roman catholicism sin and sin damnation thou art in a parlous state angel clare i glory in my protestantism she said severely then clare thrown by sheer misery into one of the demoniacal moods in which a man does despot to his true principles called her close to him and fiendishly whispered in her ear the most heterodox ideas he could think of his momentary laughter at the horror which appeared on her fair face ceased when it merged in pain and anxiety for his welfare dear mercy he said you must forgive me i think i am going crazy she thought he was and thus the interview ended and clare re-entered the vicarage with the local banker he deposited the jewels till happier days should arise he also paid into the bank thirty pounds to be sent to tess in a few months as she might require and wrote to her at her parents' home in Blackmoor Vale to inform her of what he had done. This amount, with the sum he had already placed in her hands, about fifty pounds, he hoped would be amply sufficient for her wants just at present, particularly as in an emergency she had been directed to apply to his father. He deemed it best not to put his parents into communication with her by informing them of her address and being unaware of what had really happened to estrange the two neither his father nor his mother suggested that he should do so during the day he left the parsonage for what he had to complete he wished to get done quickly as the last duty before leaving this part of england it was necessary for him to call at the wellbridge farmhouse in which he had spent with tess the first three days of their marriage the trifle of rent having to be paid the key given up of the rooms they had occupied, and two or three small articles fetched away that they had left behind. It was under this roof that the deepest shadow ever thrown upon his life had stretched its gloom over him. Yet when he had unlocked the door of the sitting-room and looked into it, 
the memory which returned first upon him was that of the happy arrival on a similar afternoon the first fresh sense of sharing a habitation conjointly the first meal together the chatting by the fire with joined hands the farmer and his wife were in the field at the moment of his visit and clare was in the rooms alone for some time inwardly swollen with a renewal of sentiment that he had not quite reckoned with he went upstairs to her chamber which had never been his the bed was smooth as she had made it with her own hands on the morning of leaving the mistletoe hung under the tester just as he had placed it having been there three or four weeks it was turning colour and the leaves and berries were wrinkled angel took it down and crushed it into the grate standing there he for the first time doubted whether his course in this conjecture had been a wise much less a generous one but had he not been cruelly blinded in the incoherent multitude of his emotions he knelt down at the bedside wet-eyed oh tess if you had only told me sooner i would have forgiven you he mourned hearing a footstep below he rose and went to the top of the stairs at the bottom of the flight he saw a woman standing and on her turning up her face recognized the pale dark-eyed is hewitt mr clare she said i have called to see you and mrs clare and to inquire if ye be well i thought you might be back here again this was a girl whose secret he had guessed but who had not yet guessed his an honest girl who loved him one who would have made as good or nearly as good a practical farmer's wife as tess i am here alone he said we are not living here now explaining why he had come he asked which way are you going home is i have no home at tabitha's dairy now sir she said why is that is looked down it was so dismal there that i left i am staying out this way she pointed in a contrary direction the direction in which he was journeying well are you going there now i can take you if you wish for a lift her olive complexion grew richer in hue oh, thank ye mr clare she said he soon found the farmer and settled the account for his rent and the few other items which had to be considered by reason of the sudden abandonment of the lodgings on clare's return to his horse and gig is jumped up beside him i am going to leave england is he said as they drove on going to brazil and do mrs clare like the notion of such a journey she asked she is not going at present say for a year or so i am going out to reconnoiter to see what life there is like they sped along eastward for some considerable distance is making no observation how are the others he inquired how is retty she was in a sort of nervous state when i sighed her last and so thin and hollow-cheeked that she do seem in a decline nobody will ever fall in love with her any more said is absently and marian is lowered her voice marian drinks indeed yes the dairyman has got rid of her and you i don't drink and i bean't in a decline but 
I am no great things at singing afore breakfast now. How is that? Do you remember how neatly you used to turn "'Twas down in Cupid's gardens and the tailor's breeches at morning milking? Ah, yes. When you first came, sir, that was. Not when you had been there a bit. Why was that falling off? Her black eyes flashed up to his face for one moment by way of answer. Is how weak of you, for such as I, he said, and fell into reverie. Then suppose I had asked you to marry me. If you had, I should have said yes, and you would have a married woman who loved ye. Really, down to the ground, she whispered vehemently. Oh, my God, did you never guess it till now? By and by they reached a branch road to a village. I must get down. I live out there, said Is abruptly, never having spoken since her avowal. Clare slowed the horse. He was incensed against his fate, bitterly disposed toward social ordinances, for they had cooped him up in a corner, out of which there was no legitimate pathway. Why not be revenged on society by shaping his future domesticities loosely, instead of kissing the pedagogic rod of convention in this ensnaring manner? "'I am going to Brazil alone, Is,' said he. "'I have separated from my wife for personal, not voyaging, reasons. I may never live with her again. I may not be able to love you, but—' Will you go with me instead of her? You truly wish me to go? I do. I have been badly used enough to wish for relief. And you at least love me disinterestedly. Yes, I will go, said Is, after a pause. You will? You know what it means, Is. It means that I shall live with you for the time you are over there. That's good enough for me. Remember, you are not to trust me in morals now, but I ought to remind you that it will be wrong-doing in the eyes of civilization, Western civilization, that is to say. I don't mind that. No woman do when it comes to agony point, and there's no other way. Then don't get down, but sit where you are. He drove past the crossroads, one mile, two miles, without showing any signs of affection. "'You love me very, very much, Is,' he suddenly asked. "'I do. I have said I do. I loved you all the time we was at the dairy together. More than Tess?' She shook her head. "'No,' she murmured. "'Not more than she.' "'How's that? Because nobody could love ye more than Tess did.' She would have laid down her life for ye. I could do no more. Like the prophet on the top of Peor, Is Hewitt would fain have spoken perversely at such a moment. But the fascination exercised over her rough nature by Tessa's character compelled her to grace. Clare was silent. His throat had risen at these straightforward words from such an unexpected, unimpeachable quarter. In his throat was something as if a sob had solidified there. His ears repeated, She would have laid down her life for ye. I could do no more. Forget our idle talk, Is. 
he said, turning the horse's head suddenly. I don't know what I've been saying. I will now drive you back to where your lane branches off. So much for honesty towards ye. Oh, how can I bear it? How can I? Is Hewitt burst into wild tears and beat her forehead as she saw what she had done. Do you regret that poor little act of justice to an absent one? Oh, Is, don't spoil it by regret. She stilled herself by degrees. Very well, sir. Perhaps I didn't know what I was saying, either. We, when I agreed to go, I, I wish what cannot be. Because I have a loving wife already. Yes, yes, you have. They reached the corner of the lane which they had passed half an hour earlier, and she hopped down. Is, please, please forget my momentary levity, he cried. It was so ill-considered, so ill-advised. Forget it? Never, never. Oh, it was no levity to me. He felt how richly he deserved the reproach that the wounded cry conveyed, and in a sorrow that was inexpressible, leaped down and took her hand. Well, but is, we'll part friends, anyhow. You don't know what I've had to bear. She was a really generous girl, and allowed no further bitterness to mar their adieu. I forgive ye, sir, she said. Ah, is, he said, while she stood beside him there, forcing himself to the mentor's part he was far from feeling. I want you to tell Marian, when you see her, that she is to be a good woman, and not to give way to folly. Promise that, and tell Reddy that there are more worthy men than I in the world, that for my sake she is to act wisely and well. Remember the words wisely and well, for my sake. I send this message to them as a dying man to the dying, for I shall never see them again. And you, Izzy, you have saved me by your honest words about my wife from an incredible impulse towards folly and treachery. Women may be bad, but they are not so bad as men in these things. On that one account I can never forget you. Be always the good and sincere girl you have hitherto been, and think of me as a worthless lover, but a faithful friend. Promise. She gave the promise. Heaven bless and keep you, sir. Good-bye. He drove on, but no sooner had Is turned into the lane and Clare was out of sight than she flung herself down on the bank in a fit of racking anguish, and it was with a strained, unnatural face that she entered her mother's cottage late that night. Nobody ever was told how Is spent the dark hours that intervened between Angel Clare's parting from her and her arrival home. Clare, too, after bidding the girl farewell, was wrought to aching thoughts and quivering lips. But his sorrow was not for his. That evening he was within a featherweight's turn of abandoning his road to the nearest station, and driving across that elevated dorsal line of South Wessex which divided him from his Tess's home. It was neither a contempt for her nature nor the probable state of her heart which deterred him. No, 
it was a sense that despite her love as corroborated by is's admission the facts had not changed if he was right at first he was right now and the momentum of the course on which he had embarked tended to keep him going in it unless diverted by a stronger more sustained force than had played upon him this afternoon he could soon come back to her he took the train that night for london and five days after shook hands in farewell of his brothers at the port of embarkation chapter forty one from the foregoing events of the winter time let us press on to an october day more than eight months subsequent to the parting of claire and tess we discover the latter in changed conditions instead of a bride with boxes and trunks which others bore we see her a lonely woman with a basket and a bundle in her own porterage as at an earlier time when she was no bride instead of the ample means that were projected by her husband for her comfort through this probationary period she can produce only a flattened purse after again leaving marlott her home she had got through the spring and summer without any great stress upon her physical powers the time being mainly spent in rendering light irregular service at dairy work near port brady to the west of the blackmore valley equally remote from her native place and from talbothay's she preferred this to living on his allowance mentally she remained in utter stagnation a condition which the mechanical occupation rather fostered than checked her consciousness was at that other dairy at that other season in the presence of the tender lover who had confronted her there he who the moment she had grasped him to keep for her own had disappeared like a shape in a vision the dairy work lasted only till the milk began to lessen for she had not met with a second regular engagement as at talbothay's but had done duty as a supernumerary only however as harvest was now beginning she had simply to remove from the pasture to the stubble to find plenty of further occupation and this continued till harvest was done of the five-and-twenty pounds which had remained to her of clare's allowance after deducting the other half of the fifty as a contribution to her parents for the trouble and expense to which she had put them she had as yet spent but little but there now followed an unfortunate interval of wet weather during which she was obliged to fall back upon her sovereigns she could not bear to let them go angel had put them into her hand had obtained them bright and new from his bank for her his touch had consecrated them to souvenirs of himself they appeared to have had as yet no other history than such as was created by his and her own experiences and to disperse them was like giving away relics but she had to do it and one by one they left her hands she had been compelled to send her mother her address from time to time but she concealed her circumstances when her money had almost gone a letter from her mother reached her joan stated that they were in dreadful difficulty the autumn rains had gone through the thatch of the house which required entire renewal but this could not be done because the previous thatching had never been paid for new rafters and a new ceiling upstairs were also required which with the previous bill would amount to a sum of twenty pounds as her husband was a man of means and had doubtless returned by this time could she not send them the money 
Tess had thirty pounds coming to her almost immediately from Angel's bankers, and, the case being so deplorable, as soon as the sum was received she sent the twenty as requested. Part of the remainder she was obliged to expend in winter clothing, leaving only a nominal sum for the whole inclement season at hand. When the last pound had gone, a remark of Angel's that, whenever she required further resources, she was to apply to his father, remained to be considered. But the more Tess thought of the step, the more reluctant she was to take it. The same delicacy, pride, false shame, whatever it may be called, on Clare's account, which had led her to hide from her own parents the prolongation of the estrangement, hindered her owning to his that she was in want after the fair allowance he had left her. They probably despised her already. How much more they would despise her in the character of a mendicant! The consequence was that by no effort could the parson's daughter-in-law bring herself to let them know her state. Her reluctance to communicate with her husband's parents might, she thought, lessen with the lapse of time, but with her own the reverse obtained. On her leaving their house after the short visit subsequent to her marriage, they were under the impression that she was ultimately going to join her husband and from that time to the present she had done nothing to disturb their belief that she was awaiting his return in comfort, hoping against hope that his journey to Brazil would result in a short stay only, after which he would come to fetch her, or that he would write her to join him. In any case, that they would soon present a united front to their families and the world. This hope she still fostered. To let her parents know that she was a deserted wife, dependent, now that she had relieved their necessities, on her own hands for a living, after the éclat of a marriage which was to nullify the collapse of the first attempt, would be too much indeed. The scent of brilliance returned to her mind. Where Clare had deposited them she did not know, and it mattered little, if it were true that she could only use and not sell them. Even were they absolutely hers, it would be passing mean to enrich herself by a legal title to them, which was not essentially hers at all. Meanwhile, her husband's days had been by no means free from trial. At this moment he was lying ill of fever in the clay lands near Curitiba in Brazil, having been drenched with thunderstorms and persecuted by other hardships, in common with all the English farmers and farm labourers, who, just at this time, were deluded into going thither by the promises of the Brazilian government, and by the baseless assumption that those frames which, ploughing and sowing on English uplands, had resisted all the weathers to whose moods they had been born, could resist equally well all the weathers by which they were surprised on Brazilian plains. To return. Thus it happened that, when the last of Tessa's sovereigns had been spent, she was unprovided with others to take their place, while on account of the season she found it increasingly difficult to get employment. Not being aware of the rarity of intelligence, energy, health, and willingness in any sphere of life, she refrained from seeking an indoor occupation, fearing towns, large houses, people of means and social sophistication, and of manners other than rural. From that direction of gentility black care had come. Society might be better than she supposed from her slight experience of it, but she had no proof of this, and her instinct in the circumstances was to avoid its purlieus. 
the small dairies to the west beyond port brady in which she had served as supernumerary milkmaid during the spring and summer required no further aid room would probably have been made for her at talbothay's if only out of sheer compassion but comfortable as her life had been there she could not go back the anti-climax would be too intolerable and her return might bring reproach upon her idolized husband she could not have borne their pity and their whispered remarks to one another upon her strange situation though she would almost have faced a knowledge of her circumstances by every individual there so long as her story had remained isolated in the mind of each it was the interchange of ideas about her that made her sensitiveness wince tess could not account for this distinction she simply knew that she felt it she was now on her way to an upland farm in the centre of the county to which she had been recommended by a wandering letter which had reached her from marian marian had somehow heard that tess was separated from her husband probably through is hewitt and the good-natured and now tippling girl deeming tess in trouble had hastened to notify to her former friend that she herself had gone to this upland spot after leaving the dairy and would like to see her there where there was room for other hands if it was really true that she worked again as of old with the shortening of the days all hope of obtaining her husband's forgiveness began to leave her and there was something of the habitude of the wild animal in the unreflecting instinct with which she rambled on disconnecting herself by littles from her eventful past at every step obliterating her identity giving no thought to accidents or contingencies which might make a quick discovery of her whereabouts by others of importance to her own happiness if not to theirs among the difficulties of her lonely position not the least was the attention she excited by her appearance a certain bearing of distinction which she had caught from clare being superadded to her natural attractiveness whilst the clothes lasted which had been prepared for her marriage these casual glances of interest caused her no inconvenience but as soon as she was compelled to don the wrapper of a field woman rude words were addressed to her more than once but nothing occurred to cause her bodily fear till a particular november afternoon she had preferred the country west of the river brit to the upland farm for which she was now bound because for one thing it was nearer to the home of her husband's father and to hover about that region unrecognized with the notion that she might decide to call it the vicarage some day gave her pleasure but having once decided to try the higher and drier levels she pressed back eastward marching afoot towards the village of chalk newton where she might pass the night the lane was long and unvaried and owing to the rapid shortening of the days dusk came upon her before she was aware she had reached the top of a hill down which the lane stretched its serpentine length in glimpses when she heard footsteps behind her back and in a few moments she was overtaken by a man he stepped up alongside tess and said good night my pretty maid to which she civilly replied the light still remaining in the sky lit up her face though the landscape was nearly dark the man turned and stared hard at her why surely it is the young wench who was at trentridge a while young squire d'urberville's friend i was there at that time though i don't live there now she recognized in him the well-to-do boor whom angel had knocked down at the inn for addressing her coarsely 
A spasm of anguish shot through her, and she returned him no answer. Be honest enough to own it, and that what I said in the town was true, though your fancy man was so up about it, eh, my sly one? You ought to beg my pardon for that blow of his, considering. Still no answer came from Tess. There seemed only one escape for her hunted soul. She suddenly took to her heels with the speed of the wind, and without looking behind her, ran along the road till she came to a gate which opened directly into a plantation. Into this she plunged, and did not pause till she was deep enough in its shade to be safe against any possibility of discovery. Underfoot the leaves were dry, and the foliage of some holly-bushes which grew among the deciduous trees was dense enough to keep off draughts. She scraped together the dead leaves till she had formed them into a large heap, making a sort of nest in the middle. Into this Tess crept. Such sleep as she got was naturally fitful. She fancied she heard strange noises, but persuaded herself that they were caused by the breeze. She thought of her husband in some vague warm clime on the other side of the globe, while she was here in the cold. Was there another such a wretched being as she in the world? Tess asked herself, and, thinking of her wasted life, said, All is vanity. She repeated the words mechanically, till she reflected that this was a most inadequate thought for modern days. Solomon had thought as far as that more than two thousand years ago. She herself, though not in the van of thinkers, had got much further. If all were only vanity, who would mind it? All was, alas, worse than vanity. Injustice, punishment, exaction, death. The wife of Angel Clare put her hand to her brow and felt its curve and the edges of her eye-sockets perceptible under the soft skin, and thought as she did so that a time would come when that bone would be bare. "'I wish it were now,' she said. In the midst of these whimsical fancies she heard a new strange sound among the leaves. It might be the wind, yet there was scarcely any wind. Sometimes it was a palpitation, sometimes a flutter, sometimes it was a sort of gasp or gurgle. Soon she was certain that the noises came from wild creatures of some kind, the more so when, originating in the boughs overhead, they were followed by the fall of a heavy body upon the ground. Had she been ensconced here under other and more pleasant conditions, she would have become alarmed, but outside humanity she had at present no fear. Day at length broke in the sky. When it had been day aloft for some little while, it became day in the wood. Directly the assuring and prosaic light of the world's active hours had grown strong, she crept from under her hillock of leaves and looked around boldly. Then she perceived what had been going on to disturb her. The plantation wherein she had taken shelter ran down at this spot into a peak, which ended it hitherward, outside the hedge being arable ground. Under the trees several pheasants lay about, their rich plumage dabbled with blood. Some were dead, some feebly twitching a wing, some staring up at the sky, some pulsating quickly, some contorted, some stretched out all of them writhing in agony, except the fortunate ones, whose tortures had ended during the night by the inability of nature to bear more. 
Tess guessed at once the meaning of this. The birds had been driven down into this corner the day before by some shooting party, and while those that had dropped dead under the shot or had died before nightfall had been searched for and carried off, many badly wounded birds had escaped and hidden themselves away, or risen among the thick boughs where they had maintained their position till they grew weaker with loss of blood in the night-time, when they had fallen one by one as she had heard them. She had occasionally caught glimpses of these men in girlhood, looking over hedges or peeping through bushes, and pointing their guns, strangely accoutred, a bloodthirsty light in their eyes. She had been told that, rough and brutal as they seemed just then, they were not like this all year round, but were, in fact, quite civil persons, save during certain weeks of autumn and winter, when, like the inhabitants of the Malay Peninsula, they ran amuck and made it their purpose to destroy life, in this case harmless feathered creatures brought into being by artificial means solely to gratify these propensities, at once so unmannerly and so unchivalrous towards their weaker fellows in nature's teeming family. With the impulse of a soul who could feel for kindred sufferers as much as for herself, Tess's first thought was to put the still-living birds out of their torture, and to this end, with her own hands, she broke the necks of as many as she could find, leaving them to lie where she had found them, till the gamekeeper should come, as they probably would come, to look for them a second time. Poor darlings! to suppose myself the most miserable being on earth in the sight of such misery as yours she exclaimed her tears running down as she killed the birds tenderly and not a twinge of bodily pain about me i be not mangled and i be not bleeding and i have two hands to feed and clothe me she was ashamed of herself for her gloom of the night based on nothing more tangible than a sense of condemnation under an arbitrary law of society which had no foundation in nature. CHAPTER Forty Two. It was now broad day, and she started again, emerging cautiously upon the highway. But there was no need for caution, not a soul was at hand, and Tess went onward with fortitude, her recollection of the bird's silent endurance of their night of agony impressing upon her the relativity of sorrows and the tolerable nature of her own if she could once rise high enough to despise opinion but that she could not do so long as it was held by clare she reached chalk newton and breakfasted at an inn where several young men were troublesomely complimentary to her good looks somehow she felt hopeful for it was not possible that her husband also might say these same things to her even yet. She was bound to take care of herself on the chance of it, and keep off these casual lovers. To this end Tess resolved to run no further risks from her appearance. As soon as she got out of the village she entered a thicket, and took from her basket one of the oldest field-gowns, which she had never put on even at the dairy, never since she had worked among the stubble at Marlott. She also, by a felicitous thought, took a handkerchief from her bundle and tied it round her face under her bonnet, covering her chin and half her cheeks and temples, as if she were suffering from toothache. Then, with her little scissors, by the aid of a pocket-looking-glass, she mercilessly nipped her eyebrows off, and thus ensured against aggressive admiration, she went on her uneven way. 
"'What a moment ever made!' said the next man who met her to a companion. Tears came into her eyes for very pity of herself as she heard him. "'But I don't care,' she said. "'Oh, no, I don't care. I'll always be ugly now, because Angel is not here, and I have nobody to take care of me. My husband, that was, is gone away, and never will love me any more. But I love him just the same, and hate all other men, and like to make them think scornfully of me." Thus Tess walks on, a figure which is part of the landscape, a field-woman, pure and simple, in winter guise, a grey serge cape, a red woollen cravat, a stuffed skirt covered by a whitey-brown rough wrapper, and buff leather gloves. Every thread of that old attire has become faded and thinned under the stroke of raindrops, the burn of sunbeams, and the stress of winds. The maiden's mouth is cold, fold over, simple fold, binding her head. Inside this exterior, over which the eye might have roved as over a thing scarcely percipient, almost inorganic, there was the record of a pulsing life which had learnt too well, for its years, of the dust and ashes of things, of the cruelty of lust and the fragility of love. Next day the weather was bad, but she trudged on, the honesty, directness, and impartiality of elemental enmity disconcerting her but little. Her object being a winter's occupation and a winter's home, there was no time to lose. Her experience of short hirings had been such that she was determined to accept no more. Thus she went forward from farm to farm in the direction of the place whence Marian had written to her, which she determined to make use of as a last shift only, its rumoured stringencies being the reverse of tempting. First she inquired for the lighter kinds of employment, and, as acceptance in any variety of these grew hopeless, applied next for the less light, till, beginning with the dairy and poultry tendons that she liked best, she ended with the heavy and coarse pursuits which she liked least, work on arable land, work of such roughness, indeed, as she would never have deliberately volunteered for. Towards the second evening she reached the irregular chalk tableland or plateau, bosomed with semi-globular tumuli, as if Cybele the many-breasted were supinely extended there, which stretched between the valley of her birth and the valley of her love. Here the air was dry and cold, and the long cart-roads were blown white and dusty within a few hours after rain. There were few trees, or none, those that would have grown in the hedges, being mercilessly plashed down with the quickset by the tenant-farmers, the natural enemies of tree, bush, and brake. In the middle distance ahead of her she could see the summits of Bullbarrow and of Nettlecombe Tout, and they seemed friendly. They had a low and unassuming aspect from Miss Upland, though as approached on the other side from Blackmoor in her childhood they were as lofty bastions against the sky. Southerly, at many miles' distance, and over the hills and ridges coastward, she could discern a surface like polished steel. It was the English Channel at a point far out towards France. Before her, in a slight depression, were the remains of a village. She had, in fact, reached Flintcomb Ash, the place of Marion's sojourn. There seemed to be no help for it. Hither she was doomed to come. 
the stubborn soil around her showed plainly enough that the kind of labor in demand here was of the roughest kind but it was time to rest from searching and she resolved to stay particularly as it began to rain at the entrance to the village was a cottage whose gable jutted into the road and before applying for a lodging she stood under its shelter and watched the evening close in who would think i was mrs angel clare she said the wall felt warm to her back and shoulders and she found that immediately within the gable was the cottage fireplace the heat of which came through the bricks she warmed her hands upon them and also put her cheek red and moist with the drizzle against their comforting surface the wall seemed to be the only friend she had she had so little wish to leave it that she could have stayed there all night tess could hear the occupants of the cottage gathered together after their day's labor talking to each other within and the rattle of their supper-plates was also audible but in the village street she had seen no soul as yet the solitude was at last broken by the approach of one feminine figure who though the evening was cold wore the print gown and tilt bonnet of summer-time tess instinctively thought that it might be marian and when she came near enough to be distinguishable in the gloom surely enough it was she marian was even stouter and redder in the face than formerly and decidedly shabbier in attire at any previous period of her existence tess would hardly have cared to renew the acquaintance in such conditions but her loneliness was excessive and she responded readily to marian's greeting marian was quite respectful in her inquiries but seemed much moved by the fact that tess should still continue in no better condition than at first though she had dimly heard of the separation tess mrs clare the dear wife of dear he and is it so really bad as this my child why is your comely face tied up in such a way anybody been beaten ye not he oh no no i merely did it not to be clipsed or called marian she pulled off in disgust a bandage which could suggest such wild thoughts and you've got no collar on tess had been accustomed to wear a little white collar at the dairy i know it marian you've lost it travelling i've not lost it the truth is i don't care anything about my looks and so i didn't put it on and you don't wear your wedding ring yes i do but not in public i wear it round my neck on a ribbon i don't wish people to think who i am by marriage or that i am married at all it would be so awkward while i lead my present life marian paused but you be a gentleman's wife and it seems hardly fair that you should live like this oh yes it is quite fair though i am very unhappy well well he married you and you can be unhappy wives are unhappy sometimes from no fault of their husbands from their own you've no faults dearie that i'm sure of and he's none so it must be something outside ye both marian dear marian will you do me a good turn without asking questions my husband has gone abroad and somehow i have overrun my allowance so that i have to fall back upon my old work for a time do not call me mrs clare but tess as before do they want a hand here 
Oh, yes, they'll take one always, because few care to come. Tis a starve-acre place. Corn and swedes are all they grow. Though I be here myself, I feel tis a pity for such as you to come. But you used to be as good a dairy-woman as I. Yes, but I got out of that since I took to drink. Lord, that's the only comfort I've got now. If you engage, you'll be swede-hacking. That's what I be doing. But you won't like it. Oh, anything. Will you speak for me? You will do better by speaking for yourself. Very well. Now, Marian, remember, nothing about him if I get the place. I don't wish to bring his name down to the dirt. Marian, who was really a trustworthy girl, though of coarser grain than Tess, promised anything she asked. This is pay night, she said, and if you were to come with me you would know at once. I be real sorry that you are not happy. But tis because he's away, I know. You couldn't be unhappy if he were here, even if he gave you no money, even if he used you like a drudge. That's true. I could not. They walked on together, and soon reached the farmhouse, which was almost sublime in its dreariness. There was not a tree within sight, there was not at this season a green pasture, nothing but fallow and turnips everywhere, in large fields divided by hedges plashed to unrelieved levels. Tess waited outside the door of the farmhouse till the group of workfolk had received their wages, and then Marian introduced her. The farmer itself, it appears, was not at home, but his wife, who represented him this evening, made no objection to hiring Tess, on her agreeing to remain till old lady day. Female field labor was seldom offered now, and its cheapness made it profitable for tasks which women could perform as readily as men. Having signed the agreement, there was nothing more for Tess to do at present than to get a lodging, and she found one in the house at whose gable-wall she had warmed herself. It was a poor subsistence that she had insured, but it would afford a shelter for the winter, at any rate. That night she wrote to inform her parents of her new address, in case a letter should arrive at Marlet from her husband. But she did not tell them of the sorriness of her situation. It might have brought reproach upon him. End of Part 3